Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, this is Christine. Hello, this is Heather. And we took a left at the valley. Fantastic. And we. Oh. Should I say it too? No, sorry. Sure. <laughs> I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith in us. Coming at you from holier than thou Abbotsford, BC. This is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and one night I figured out I'd let my girlfriend make the first move. And then she decided to move to another town. Oh my gosh. Joining me as usual is a team considered a misdemeanor. The, mi- the more they miss, the meaner they get. <laughs> true. Uh, so true. She said the great thing about masturbation is that you don't have to dress up for it, Nancy. <laughs> you don't know the struggle of being a woman. <laughs> and she thought gargoyle was an olive-flavored mouthwash. <laughs> oh my gosh, I totally would. I'm so fun like that sometimes. And she started frisbeetarianism, which is where you die and your soul flies onto the roof and is stuck there forever. Kirsten. <laughs> <laughs> I have no words for that one. I will adhere to that religion right there. <laughs> Guys, welcome back. Hope you had a great week. Uh, yeah, I've had better. Okay. I'm back. Yes, yes. you're back. That, that has been good. Person is back. Let, let's put it this way. We're all glad the week is over and we're here. Yes, exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so today we'll be talking to Andrew Jasko. So that's going to be very interesting. But first, let's do a bit of chit-chat. Um, okay. We are coming on a 50-year anniversary. This is for our listeners. And uh, if you guys have some questions you want us to answer on the show about behind the scenes or stuff like that, you know, where did Nancy learn her assassin trade, etc., etc., we will answer these questions. Make sure to send them to us, either via the website or left at valley at outlook.com. Now, this is interesting because I, I got to give a little shout-out to... Uh, to uh, a buddy uh, named Raj, <laughs> Raj sent us a uh, sent me a friend request, and um, he also became our first patron. What? Now the funny thing, <laughs> the funny thing about this is, I had opened a Patreon page like months ago. Well, I never talked to him about the show because I, I I didn't think I'd finished it, and I also didn't think it was active. <laughs> apparently it's been active all this time so if you want to support us patreon.com slash latv so 
So Raj sent us, <laughs> he's become our first patron, and he, he says he's discovered the show recently, and he likes the show, and he likes to encourage us. So thank you so much, Raj. I really appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, I'll second that, because <laughs> I got an email from Raj as well. It was a lovely email. Yes. And yeah. it, it's nice to know that we have a fan in Philadelphia. This is, this is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I sent him back, I hope, another lovely email to match his. But welcome, you know, is our is our fan and our our patron. We're we're so glad our you're first one of patron. our listeners. We should almost yeah. do something special yeah. for him. I know. And thank you for getting me off my ass. I should try to finish the Patreon page now. Yeah. And <laughs> Thanks, Raj. Guess, guess who else he likes? Iron Raw. Yes. Yes. I mean, he, how how could you not whole... like a guy who likes Iron? Right. He he described himself as a bit of a. Uh, uh, atheist podcast yeah, junkie and yeah. you know he's got a whole bunch of them that he's supporting and yeah. we're one of them now so he's discovered us recently and Yay. thank you so much for joining us Raj and hopefully we can continue to uh, make you laugh and inform you a, l- a little bit um, okay I want to do another little shout out to our, one of our co-hosts who's not here today Dominic Dominic buddy I know you're listening you need to know I got your back okay that's all I'm gonna say all right keep moving hey we all have it's back we all yeah. have absolutely <laughs> Um, apparently, did you guys hear there's a growing trend? Well, you guys know there's a growing trend of adults refusing to vaccinate their kids. Kill yes. Now, and that's please. a problem. Oh, I hate these people. Well, what you might not know, <laughs> there's also a growing trend of kids... Getting measles. No, well, no. <laughs> yes, but no, that's not what I'm looking for. Not that no. one. There's a growing trend of kids going on Reddit and trying to get vaccines yes. without the p- uh, parental consent. I've heard of that as well. That. Yeah. I told you that generation is actually smarter than the older generation. Yep. I told you. And it's kind of sad when the kids are like, okay, we know this is a good idea, mm-hmm. but our parents don't. So how can we like go behind their back, essentially, so we can actually, you know, not, not die? die. Uh, apparently, in most states, uh, you have to be uh, 16. Uh, they will respect your privacy. Mm-hmm. They won't necessarily inform your parents. But you need to be 18 for parental consent about getting a vaccination. Um, Vaxopedia.com apparently has a list of 15 states where no consent is actually required. So I would uh, encourage people in the states to look up that page. Um, did you guys hear that? Apparently, some Israeli scientists believe they will find a cancer cure within the next year. I really? Hope, I hope so. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. It's called the AE by anti-cancer treatment. It mm. uses multi-targeted toxin as a cancer antibiotic, if you wish. And the cancer it attacks three receptors of the cancer cell at a time. Which means that the cancer cell doesn't have time to evolve mm-hmm. because you can evolve to try to block one receptor and you can, you know, by yeah. reproduction, but it doesn't have time to do all three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, recently, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's also some Canadian researchers who are close to um, a cancer cure. I'm using mm-hmm. that word advisedly. And it looks like. You know, in in various parts of the world, there's research that's really hopeful so that within the next two or three years, perhaps for some forms of cancer, there, there will be a cure. Now that there are the targeted pills that are working on certain types of cancer. I, I don't know whether the new research goes an entirely new direction mm-hmm. or takes that as its foundation, but that's really great news. It's great news. Also, yeah. uh, maybe the word cure is not a right word because yeah, I'm, this I'm, is not like a virus. I think a lot yeah. of people get confused with thinking of cancer cure is going to be uh, like a like a polio cure or something like that. It's not mm-hmm. a virus, not an outside body. There's so many different types of cancer and they all respond differently yeah. to certain treatment. Uh, but also with the advent of genetic testing, mm-hmm. they're also figuring out that by knowing your genetic 
genetic uh, code, uh, there are some medicines that they can actually prescribe to you or respond to as to another person would not. Yeah, it would have so to be, it's I tailor would imagine. Tailor made for you. I guess it would be, you know, a specific type of cancer rather than a, yeah, an yeah. umbrella. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to have an umbrella thing. I, I can't right? see that. Happening. Which, of course, also debunks all these people that think, oh, they've had a cancer cure forever and they just don't want to release it because they make more money at it. Yeah. No, no, it's not like that. <laughs> this will work. Yeah. If, if cancer was an outside virus that would attack you, maybe you'd have something there. But since cancer develops within yourself, it's not something you catch. It's something you develop. Anyway, we could go on on this, but that's a great show. We should do that. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys hear that? Um, this is from the LA Times. They report that 15% of children death in the U.S. is due to guns. I did 15%. see that. 15%. You're talking about over 3,000 kids in 2016 which is actually more than pediatric cancer, which was 1853, and childhood drownings at 995, and poison and drug overdose at 982. And this was compiled by the University of Michigan. Only the car accidents, which was 4,074, was actually worse. Mm -hmm. Wow, when you think that one of the greatest cause of death for a child in the U.S. is guns? And you know, the funny thing is, every time there's a child drowning somewhere, everybody goes, oh, my God, I can't, but people, watch your kids. When it comes to guns, it's like, eh, yeah, just shrug your shoulders. Wasn't there a group of doctors or pediatricians last year that declared um, guns a health hazard, a national health hazard? Am I remembering correctly? No that, 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 that does ring a bell. Yeah. That does ring a bell. So this, this goes along so. with, with that declaration yeah. last year. Yeah, they'd be correct to do so. Mm. Okay. It's like, people, if you have guns in your house and you have kids, lock them up. The kid, I grew, lock the kids. the kids up. Lock them up. <laughs> I grew up in a house with guns. The guns were in a safe. The bullets were in another place. And the keys were in a totally separate place. Yeah, None of them were together. Right, I think if you lock the kids up, in that the safe. solves the problem. Yeah, well, yeah, the, lock that. the kids up in the safe. You know, yeah. Make sure there's an air hole. Yep. <laughs> we can get some letters. Um, Don't actually do that, people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't take your children advice on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you guys hear that the girls will now be able to join the Boy Scouts? Now it's official. Um, Why it, would they want to? Well, Girl Scouts is so much funner. Girl guides, girl guides, the best. yeah. So now I guess the Boy Scouts will be renamed just the Scouts. Uh, the Cub Scouts have already, which is like the the younger version of the Scouts, have already welcomed seventy seven thousand girls last year. Wow. Nice. Um, I I think, Christina, one of the reasons that girls might want to is because by combining the the scout programs, the girls now have access to Eagle Scout and some of the other badges that lead them more into leadership roles that give them a a leg up in terms of of, uh, professions Mm -hmm. and and things like that. I think they're still going to call it um, Boy Scouts of America, but they're going to use just BSA. Yeah. So there's still some Scouts buggies in, the, mm-hmm. in it, but overall, I, I, I guess uh, most girls are who are in the scouting program are in favor of it, not all of mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we'll just have to see at the end of a couple of years how it works mm-hmm. out. As long as it can change those Girl Guide cookies. I, yeah. I You know, everybody likes them. I just can't stand them. I was like, what the hell's wrong with people? All um, of them are just certain. I did. They're just horrible. You know what's funny is the thing about Girl Guide cookies, and this one I found because um, I was also in Girl Guides. Whenever you have the mint ones, everyone wants the um, vanilla and chocolate ones. And whenever you have the vanilla and chocolate ones, everyone wants the mint ones. <laughs> so here's an idea. Switch the time of year that they're at. out at. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. 
I think they used to taste better years ago, but that may be nostalgia rather well, I than mean, actuality. They're, they're mechanically reproduced cookies. They're not like homemade, right? So yeah. uh, it's, quite, it's quite possible that the factory is just cheaping out. Um, and last but certainly not least, uh, many, many shows ago, we talked about a Greenland shark and that was estimated to be between 272 and 512 years old. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the... They're still trying to determine if that shark is actually that old, uh, he, and it would make up the, the oldest vertebrate on Earth. Um, now they find out that it's probably closer to 272, um, because the margin of error actually puts it between 272 and 512, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the problem with sharks is, you know, if you really want to know, you'd have to kill it, of course. Yeah. You don't want to do that. Um, but the sharks have, uh, Greenland sharks, have a, they have a lens over their eye, and that lens keeps growing they like layers of, of of that forms over their eyes with every year, so you can kind of count them like tree rings. So that's how they de- they're determining whether that shark is actually. That so, old. so I guess five hundred two seventy two big deal. The, the, the whole yeah, I know point, when you're yeah. five thousand yeah, years old, you, I know it's easy yeah, for you, you to say. Yeah, when you pass hundred and fifty, <laughs> but when you, I guess when you realize that the um, the tissues and the cells keep renewing or they don't seem to die off however the renewal works or how the system you know their system just keeps um going through the the the, the, boy am i ever getting mixed up and trying to say something simple (laughs) but what is it about the shark system that keeps it going and eventually is some beauty company going to say yeah here's some shark extract that's going to keep you looking 20 even though you're 97 well it's a shark that's hard to get first of all because it lives in Greenland and yeah. very cold, very deep waters. Mm-hmm. So it has a very kind of slow metabolism. It oh, moves okay. slowly. You know, it doesn't expend a lot of energy. It's it conserves everything. Yeah. You know, it takes its sweet time, and it's a bit like the turtle of the seas in a yeah, way, but right? Even so, too. I mean, that's a that's a long time for I just get an organs image. to keep. Yeah, I just get an image, you know, if you get those, these layers, that lens that goes over your eye and it gets thicker and thicker, like, do the really old sharks have, like, Coke bottle glasses over their <laughs> eyes, you know, at some point, you know? That's going to be interesting. So, anyway, mm-hmm. we're keeping an eye on that. Fascinating. Fascinating yes, indeed. Yeah. Perfect. All right, my dear Nancy, you got yourself a top ten for us? I sure do. By the way, yes. today is Groundhog Day. Really? It is. It's February and, the 10th. Yes, and uh, Donald Trump came out, didn't see his shadow, so there won't be a wall for another six weeks. <laughs> Good news. <laughs> okay, this top 10 is to make people happy and never have another boring job again. Which is a big list. But the list is this is from an original list of 32. I pared it down to 10, and it's from a website called tradeschool.net, and it lists fun jobs that you can get that pay pretty good money and they're unusual fun jobs so that you don't have to do the same old thing and just collect your paycheck and huh. be tired of it all every Poppy week. Cuddler. Well, we know podcasters now and on last. Uh, well, well, it's a fun job, but it doesn't pay. <laughs> well, we'll, 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 we'll see. Maybe they were ignored. Maybe they should have been number 32 and we're down to 10. But let's start with number 10. And number 10 fun job, according to this list, is sommelier. 
Oh, Which one is that? Drinking wine, attending posh events, meeting interesting and famous people, and impressing them with your remarkable wine knowledge. Mm-hmm. What could That's be a better? job? That's oh, you an actual it is job. A job. <laughs> and the average annual salary in the U.S. is a little over $46,000 a year. To talk about wine. <laughs> you, you have to be trained, <laughs> oh, yeah, but it's a professional job. And in the, the, the higher-end restaurants and resorts, it's a it's a really good position. Like, uh, Christina, have you seen these uh, these uh, jobs where these people have the bottle of champagne and they open it with a sword? Yeah, okay. That's yeah, a job. That's a, that. Well, it's not a sommelier, but that's a job, too. And apparently that pays through the nose as well I to open it's... a bottle with a sword. That's well, a it's job. quite a skill because you can see a lot of fails where, some, where stuff like that oh, goes I'm sure. wrong. Yeah. So it's but a anyway, skill. For, for those people that, you know, drink a little wine and enjoy a it, little. why not rise <laughs> to the top? Yeah, and wine. bring a sword along with <laughs> you. Bring a sword along yeah. with you. Okay, number nine, sort of in the same vein, food critic. And yeah, f- that, yeah, that could be fun. So the fun factor there is you get to dine for free at some of the best restaurants if you get a good job with a newspaper or a magazine that, that you can you can aspire to that. Um, you also have servers and chefs give their all to ensure that you love them <laughs> and impress, yeah. and you get to impress others with your culinary knowledge. Now, <laughs> i got to give you guys a little story on this. I did that. I wasn't, I wasn't a real food critic, but what I did back then when I was a, a lab, I borrowed a credit card from one of my friends because back then security wasn't all agree, right? And I went to a restaurant with my best dress suit mm. with a pad. And I came in and I said, I want the specialty of the house. And I started writing notes. And had the best service ever. <laughs> the best service ever. It's like, oh, complimentary this, complimentary that. They were just all over oh, me. Oh, my God. I bet. Did you ever write anything up? No, I, was no, just, I just, just pretended. You got all the goodies with none of the work. They thought I was a food critic, and I just walked in there and out yes. of her. Now, if you had followed your inclination to do that, you would have been making a salary somewhere around 47000 bucks. Not bad. Not bad. Ah, and decent. it goes... I don't know whether it goes up or down from there, but it, it certainly is a is a fun way that you have to maintain your good weight. Though that's a, that's a problem with all that good food. Number eight, NASCAR mechanic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Anything that's mechanic. Yeah. Just that, don't make friends with the drivers because they're probably going to die. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's dark. Yeah, but the, the fun fact, taking the, the, you know, leaving that aside for a minute, <laughs> the fun factors on that is that you get to join the racing circuit. Yeah. You enjoy the thrill of all the racing events around the country. You get to know professional NASCAR drivers on a first name basis. And their entry level salary, this is surprising, their entry level salary is anywhere from forty-five to $65,000. Oh. Not bad if you're a pretty good mechanic. Actually, I kind of thought it'd be way higher than that for a NASCAR. Yeah. Okay, this, that was entry level. Yeah. That's entry level. Okay, so here we go. This is, you wouldn't think this is a job, but this is number seven on a list of ten. Fortune cookie writer. (laughs) I love that one. We should do that, that guys. We should make our own fortune cookie. Yeah, the fun factor on that one is you you get paid to use your wit and wisdom to produce sometimes thought provoking and sometimes memorable one liners that appeal to the mass. But they have to be very vague. 
You know, it, it'd be fun to have a fortune cookie company, but all the fortunes are like horrible. They're just on purpose horrible, you know. <laughs> you will draw from a 10-story yeah. window or something like that. I'm, I'm sure there have to be some kind of horrible fortune cookie boxes out there. You, that you call it the horrible fortune cookie company. Have, you know, it, have it like fortune cookie roulette. Some okay. dog will bite you. Now, here's, here's surprising <laughs> that came from this legitimate um, uh, website. Whether you believe it or not, last year, the average annual salary for a fortune cookie writer, and I haven't done any research, but if you're interested, research this out. Average annual salary, 74440 U.S. Wow. I know. Why no? Jeez. Isn't that something? Does it change your mind about sitting and writing little one-liners <laughs> on teeny tiny pieces of paper? Well, how many one-liners do you have to write a day? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. yeah. Well, you'd have to have to look into that. You, you think know. they have like a miniature I, typewriter? I don't think. Uh, uh, well, you've got English on one side and Chinese on the other. And then so you I put don't. random numbers on the back of it, right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. The numbers are on yeah. the back. Okay. Number six, moving up from sitting at the desk writing uh, for a little cookie. Hollywood stunt person. Oh, yeah. yeah. They yeah. definitely get paid well. I know a couple of them. Yeah, it's so that fun job. factor is you can pretend to be a famous actor or actress and perform jaw-dropping, possibly death-defying stunts that will, at the very least, make for some great dinner conversation. Mm-hmm. What do you think the average salary is for that? 60000 Close, seventy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's... not bad. Okay. I have to fly to LA on a regular basis. Or just yeah. to live there. Number five. Or live in Vancouver. Yeah, number five, <laughs> which I think would be fun for a really creative person, is toy designer. Hmm. Oh, That's yeah. a real thing. Toy designer. Yeah, the fun factor. You can forget being an adult and spend your days playing with toys, let your <laughs> imagination run free and create cool and innovative toys that appeal to kids. And you get to play with a lot of kids, too. To I just out. want to invent a Nancy action figurine. Yeah. <laughs> With Kung Fu Grip. There, well, you get to be a toy designer, and I'll be the very first... Um, miniature Uzi. Miniature, you know, miniature <laughs> toy with with an assortment of assassin weapons. I think we got something. That'd be you, beautiful. You think we could do this by next Christmas and Probably. you know really make some money? Left of the valley, huh? Because the average <laughs> the average salary is around seventy one thousand, which is close to Hollywood stunt person. That's not bad. So yeah, but then you and I would split the split. Oh, you the can problem. be the stunt person. Yeah, I go go design the toys. <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Close to that at number. Number four, and this is going to appeal to the ladies sitting in front of us here, video game designer. You know, yeah. I actually considered that for a career. See, I knew it was I actually That was actually in my, like, I want to do this. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, it's there's no... Late. I know. There's no reason you can't start now, because here's the fun factors. You We'd have know. to move to Alberta. Yeah, so... No, we wouldn't. So here yeah, but f- to be with BioWare, we would. Yeah, so here are the fun factors that they list, and then after I read them, let me know why you wanted to do it. The fun factors they list is that um, you can be a creator of a, the next Red Hot video game that hit the market. You might be able to model characters and scenes based on the people and places in your own life. So what was it about the the job that, that was attractive to you? It was just because I love playing video games and just that creative aspect of I couldn't decide what I specifically wanted to do, mm-hmm. probably in like maybe character or like the world creation. Mm-hmm. 
um, and just being able to create these kind of dynamic characters that mm. people will then get to fall in love with. Oh, so how, what do you think your average salary would have been? Oh, 80, I, I actually would have researched this and I cannot remember. 90000 83,000. A little over 83,000. Yeah, I'm in. Well, yeah, we're, we're moving to Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guess what? Pretty good. Uh, the, yeah. The, the, the fun thing is, is when I was a kid, your parents would totally discourage you from playing video games. But oh, today, yeah. you, you almost can't do the that to your kid. parents yeah. play video games No, now. but you almost can't do that to your kid because it might actually leg- legitimately become a career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> playing and designing video games. There are tournaments where people play sports as video games. Yes. Tournaments. Actually, the mm-hmm. Aquilini family that owns the Vancouver Canucks just yeah. bought a virtual sports team. Yeah. Mm. So I was like, are you kidding me? This is going to be like the next big thing. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Okay, so number three. Uh, this is kind of a surprising one, but it is for fun games. Ferrari Driving Instructor. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Ferrari Driving Instructor. Well. The fun factor is driving Ferraris for a living. They don't list any more fun factors. That seems to be so. If you're a single focus fun wow. factor person, and the average salary eighty nine thousand. I mean, now that was an instructor for an instructor. it, correct? See, that would be all great, except for when you're doing the after you've told them what to do and taking them through a run through or whatever. When you end up in the passenger seat. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're a little bit of a daredevil. Because if somebody wants to learn how to drive a Ferrari, there's a reason for it. Well, yeah. the fact that they're getting instructions means they're not totally crazy. No. Yeah, that's too. Because otherwise they would have just started um, Maybe there's driving. also that brake pedal on the passenger side that you can use as well. well you know? I, 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 didn't I hope re- so. I, yeah, I didn't research this, Kirsten, but maybe maybe you could. Is to, to look up... Uh, uh, Ferrari driving instructor to see if there are any openings hmm. and see what they list as the um, is your, what kind of resume are they are they looking for? Probably having driven a Ferrari. I, I, you know, I'm sure that would be are, a good point. Yeah, I wonder if there are driving instructors for the other you know high powered. It's a good question. Auto, it's a good question. Be. Lamborghini yeah. instructor. Okay, number two. Some people can barely parallel park. <laughs> number two, and this is a surprise. This was kind of a fun one. Well, it's a fun list. Ethical hacker. Oh, oh wow. so like a white hat? You make good money hacking into computer systems. Yes, security yeah, so, so a white hat. And hacker. then you can take pride in knowing that you have the upper hand over black hat hackers. Average salary, 99000 almost $100,000 wow. a year. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Would you want to do that? Oh, I, I can barely turn the computer yeah, on. Yeah, so yeah Okay, number one. My computer said the other day it couldn't locate the printer. I typed yeah. it's on your left. So, so if you were making a list of fun, fun, fun jobs, what would you put as number one? Then I'll tell you what this list is. Oh, has. zookeeper. <laughs> yeah. Zoo, yeah, there's a good one. I wanted to be a zookeeper. Yeah, I'd be your assistant. That's yeah. a fun one. I'd want to. I'd want to feed the giraffes. Yeah. Yeah, I want to see you guys feed the lions. Yeah. So, Kevin, yeah. what would be your fun job? Oh, God. Uh, I, You know, I don't know off the top of my head. Too many fun things to choose from, huh? Well, you know, I, the thing is, is I've, I've, I've been so brainwashed to think as a job as not something fun. that now you're putting me on the spot and think of a fun thing mm-hmm. to do for a job, and I have a hard time coming up with something. I think that's, the, that's one aspect of millennials that we have over others. It's because millennials weren't taken in by the idea that yeah. oh work is just yeah 
Exactly. You you earn money and work so you can retire. Because you, my yeah, generation's like, well, why we would we fun. do something we don't enjoy? Yeah, because you know what, we aren't going to make enough to retire. Because you That's yeah, just yeah, a fact. you're asking me dream, you're asking me dream job, and my job, I went to like astrophysics or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a, it's a great job. It could be a dream job, but is it really a fun job? I don't know. Well, you really you, enjoy. You know, it, why huh? take a job if it, there isn't a fun aspect? Yeah, to it. I, I mean, so, it would, person other than video designer, any other fun job? Horse oh. trainer. That's you. Yeah, that is me. It's funny that we're all sitting here and nobody is saying podcast person. Yeah. <laughs> well, because we're already doing that. Yeah, I mean. that's true. But it's fun. That's, that, I think it that's, is fun. It really is our fun. You know, that's our fun of the week for sure. Okay, number one, according to this list, is private island caretaker. Oh, oh okay. Man. Well. Oh, yeah. And yes. The, the fun factor, soak up the sun, go on adventures, and pretend that it's your very own island. Yeah, you just have to be antisocial because you ain't going to be hanging out with people much. No, you can bring well, people. Depends, you can bring people I, on the island pretending it's yours, right? I guess it depends how you get on and off. Annual salary is up to $100,000. Well, I guess it depends how big the island and how much work there is to do because it's almost like a, a, a landscaping yeah. at this point, right? Groundskeeper. Yeah. <laughs> not sure landscaping. Even if it's a private island, I'm not sure a lot of landscaping on a private island is all that great. Yeah, but and it is a real job. I think it's on. Um, what's the the, um, the 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 TV show? There's so many of them, but there's a real estate show calling Finding Your Own mm. Private Island. Yep. And you can be I just near had the Florida thought. Keys or in other what? parts of the world. And there are a lot of private islands for sale. So it's conceivable that if you are have the temperament and the right resume, you could be a private island. Uh, caretaker. Yeah, I guess so. Not out of reach. Only problem is the time of the year that the people aren't going to be there, that you're going to be there, is hurricane season. Well, it depends where the island is, right? Yeah. yeah. Most private islands are in hurricane territory. No, I wouldn't know. Why would you think that? Well, like, you think... You got private islands right here off the coast of uh, British Columbia. Okay, that is true. Yeah. Okay, I didn't think of that. See, I'm no. thinking, like... like Tropical island yeah, getaway. Yeah, tropical islands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you want to. Oh, BC private island! Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. So, if someone has their own island and you're looking for a team of caretakers yeah. who will also broadcast their podcast <laughs> from your location, <laughs> contact any of us immediately. Send us a message. Yes, because it's February here, and we'd like to find someplace warm. <laughs> I'm okay it's with actually this. Actually, not cold here. You, you want to hear something? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to um, West Van, and they were building this tower uh, full of condos, right? And I happened to bump into our old friend, Wyatt Scott. Remember oh, Wyatt Scott? Sure. Well, he was working with the construction crew. So Wyatt says, come with me. I'll take you to, uh, to a tour. So I went upstairs to the penthouse. <laughs> now, this is one of those penthouses that you see in a movie where there's a pool and a waterfall oh, on the roof. Oh, my oh. gosh. And the view of the Barard Inlet and all wow. that stuff. That penthouse, as they're building right now, is going to go for $25 million. Yikes. Wow. Now, I couldn't help but think, you know what? If I had $25 million to spend, the I last, wouldn't get a penthouse. No. The last thing I want is a freaking condo. You can build, you can get an island for that price. Why would you, why would you, you know, you get your own private mm-hmm. island for that price? I'd buy a, a horse I guess farm. if you don't want any responsibilities everything would be taken care of by the maintenance in the building and you can just enjoy it 
without any. Um, but then I can hire also, one. Also I can hire one really, of you guys to take care of my island. Some people, people really enjoy the taste. city. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you saying? I said some people really enjoy the city. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, it's like the rest of these condos in there were going for like four mm-hmm. million a piece. I'd get a you horse stable on that. Well, it's pretty damn close to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, wow. Anyway, twenty-five mil. Hmm. Oh, the things you could do. If we pulled our money, we would not have twenty-five we still million. Would. <laughs> no. Patreon goal. Yeah. <laughs> Buy us a condo, guys. All right, it's time for another brilliant moment. Brought to you by religion. Oh, yes, it is. So, more than 20,000 people have signed a petition created by a Muslim who says Nike, the sportswear giant, needs to recall offensive shoe with Allah's name (laughs) from the worldwide market. Oh, Allah's name is on a shoe? Apparently. Oh, I can see the problem with that, right? Because they probably think that you're stepping on Allah's name every time you take a step. I'm getting to that. Okay. The shoe in question, the Nike Air Max 270, does not insult Muhammad or even feature imagery from Islam. It just has a stylized font, common among brands like that, that vaguely resembles the Arabic word for Allah. Oh, okay. I see what this is. Yeah, yeah, now you see where it's going. Oh, yeah. So here's what the petition says. Nike has produced the Nike Air Max 270 shoe with the script logo on the sole resembling the word Allah in Arabic which will surely be trampled, kicked, and become soiled with mud or even filth. (laughs) It is outrageous and appalling of Nike to allow the name of God on a shoe. This is disrespectful and extremely offensive to Muslims and insulting to Islam. Islam teaches compassion, kindness, and fairness towards all. After recalling trainers in 1997, which had a similar logo depicting the word Allah, Nike claimed to have tightened scrutiny on logo design. So why has a similar design been approved? We urge Nike to recall this blasphemous and offensive shoe and all products with the design logo resembling the word Allah from worldwide sales immediately. You know, the irony of it all is the word Nike comes from Nike, the goddess of victory. Hmm. So <laughs> so you have one goddess and then you have... You know, oh, God. <laughs> You know, I see so many of these images of Muslims that get really offended by this kind of stuff. They see a tuft of fur that kind of has this very vague look or something on a watermelon that has this very vague look of the word Allah and they all praise it, you know. Now it's on the shoe. That's blasphemy. Yeah. Well, (laughs) here's what it is. It's a stylized version of the word Air Max on the sole of the shoe. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the the R is kind of inside the M. And when you flip it upside down, that center part of it looks like the Arabic word for Allah. Yeah, so you have to like really squint to see. They're like turning it and looking at it like that. Yeah. You so have to be looking like for trouble. finding Jesus and toast. That's exactly It's that. exactly what it is. Um, so the point is, our brains see patterns. It's just what they do. It's not the company's fault that their designs look to us like something that could possibly offend our imaginary friends. Uh, Nike has responded, as you'd expect, denying any intentional offense. Nike said in a statement the logo was a stylized representation of the Air Max trademark and any other perceived meaning of our representation is unintentional. It said, Nike respects all religions and we take concerns of this nature seriously. Uh, (laughs) As previously mentioned, they did run into a similar problem in 1997 and the Council on American Islamic Relations protested the company's logo on certain athletic shoes, saying it resembled the word Allah in Arabic script. 
Uh, Nike said at the time it regretted any misunderstanding, explaining that the logo was meant to look like flames and recalled that line of shoes. So what do you guys think? Should they do the similar thing with this? Yeah, I don't think so. No, no. Leave it alone. I mean, the key word there is that it resembles. Well, yeah, it just says Air Max. You know, because they're not saying it is or it's offensive, you know, because it's obviously, you know, trying to be discriminatory. It it resembles. Well, there's a lot of things that resemble. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, you know... uh, Oh, well. <laughs> the, 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 I remember an, an, an image where they had a, a person, they, they had a skeleton and said this was proof of God, of Allah, because they had a skeleton lying on its side. And of course, if you look at a skeleton on the side, you have the, the feet pointing up and then you have the, 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 the legs and then it, ma- it made a circle around the hip and then another oh circle God. around the skull. And that, that shape of the feet going down and the loop and the loop sort of spelled Allah for some fucking reason. And this yeah, was their no. proof of God. It was like, no. come on, come on. You're just looking for things that yes, aren't really there. Yes, It's called pareidolia. Yep. Oh. All right. All right. I do have another one here. All By right. All means. And this one's really interesting. Mind you, they're all interesting. Well, hold on. Maybe I should put some... Right, so there's an apologetics ministry called Stand to Reason that claims to train Christians to defend their faith. And in a recent email sent to supporters, founder Greg Kukul celebrated STR's work in action. He explained that one of his books has been used at a middle school Bible camp, and the camp counselor told him the teens left camp better equipped than in any prior year. (laughs) According to the email, they knew the curriculum worked because they brought in an atheist to debate the kids and the kids won oh oh hold on of course they did did they bring like a real atheist or they brought like a fake atheist (laughs) I'll get to that in a minute (laughs) here's the relevant portion of the letter that was sent out Nick even staged a stump the atheist event to conclude the five day camp he brought in an atheist really a Biola student and SDR listener and the kids peppered him with questions with many of them asking some amazing follow-up questions, even pointing out his inconsistencies. I was a bit nervous, Nick admitted. I wasn't sure anyone would rise to the occasion. But when the time came, after a week of training, the kids were armed and ready. A week of training? During the atheist role play, I was tearing up, Nick added. The material in your book proved to be an incredibly effective tool in equipping youth, our youth this summer. So essentially what they did is they brought a dummy like a punch bag dummy and they put it in the corner okay kids you go ahead and ask your questions and after a week of trying to stop a guy who was obviously paid to just take a fall yeah they came out heroically better well this wasn't throughout the whole week they had their week of their bible camp and then this was at the very end oh yeah, yeah well. um yeah no they brought in an evangelical christian to role play as an atheist because they're oh, so course. good at that. I guess fake atheists wouldn't be on our list of fun jobs. You know, the fun, no, I guess not. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, they could have just grabbed a real atheist and, you know, have the kids have a go at it. And But they do realize if you uh-huh. bring in a real atheist. Your kids are going to fail. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Your indoctrination is going to fail quick. They might become atheists. <laughs> this just shows the hypocrisy of the faith, right? And they, this is what we always say, right? Between 4 and 14. They yeah. try to get the kids there because, you know. But those kids are going to think, wow, we studied hard oh, yeah. and we defeated yeah. that they're, atheist. Then they're going to go online and say, I don't get it. I was, I gave him a Bible quote. Why doesn't he believe me? Oh, exactly. 
Like they do this against that fake atheist. And like, oh, we did so good. We were amazing. And then they're going to get into real life and be like, oh, shit. Yeah. And then, nah. heaven forbid, they're going to bump into a, like a, a real atheist. A really, no, not just that. Yeah. A real atheist, but one that's also a bit of an asshole. Oh. And he's just going to skewer them. It's like, oh, I feel bad for these kids. Religious trauma. Let's yeah, call Andrew we'll, back. We'll send those kids hmm. to Andrew. They'll be okay. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for that, ladies. So let's take a quick pause, and when we come back, we'll be talking to religious drama coach Andrew Jasko. That's going to be fun, so stay with us. In a world torn apart by a lack of reason. Or And I think it should be religion treated with ridicule and hatred and contempt. And I claim that right. In the morning. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Stanley from the Right to Reason podcast. And if you subscribe now, you'll get free. Learn more about the broadcast at therighttoreason.com. listeners we are the godless heathens podcast here's the details with no fine print you got new episodes available every other sunday Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. there's three of us just like the holy trinity i'm don i'm jeff and i'm jerry coming to you from a spare bedroom in exurban atlanta where we'll examine the crossroads of politics and religion, but from the secular perspective. Sometimes we get heavy, sometimes we get deep. And no one is above reproach or mockery, especially each other. It's more of what you want and less of what you don't. So open your hearts and minds to the godless heathens in your podcast rotation. And you just might learn something, too. We have to realize that we are in a situation where people are flying planes into our buildings because they think God wrote their book and that they're going to get to paradise by dying in the right circumstances. And it seems to me a a point of of really exquisite obviousness that the response to this situation cannot be, sorry guys, God wrote our book and you're going to hell. Well, our next guest is Mr. Andrew Jasko, who describes himself as a religious drama coach. He's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us at Left of the Valley. It's great to be here. You say that now. You might regret this in a few minutes. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> Andrew, uh, you and I have been uh, talking here and there, but uh, our part of our audience probably doesn't know you. Maybe you'd be so kind to give us a quick bio as to who Andrew Jasko is. Absolutely. So right now I coach people recovering and healing from religious trauma and biblical abuse. And I'm studying, training to become a clinical psychologist right now, getting my doctorate. And I was formerly a Christian Pentecostal evangelical minister before I left my religion. Oh, my my gosh. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Could have been worse. I guess it could have been a snake handler. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jesus, that, that's a that's a hell of a switch from being a Pentecostal minister to a guy who's about to get his doctorate in psychology. Yeah, but yeah. who better to, well, to be a coach? You know, yeah. it's kind of it's kind of like the the shadow side or the dark side of psychology. <laughs> Welcome to the dark side. So so it's great preparation for my career, you know, because mm-hmm. I know all the stuff, all the issues, and all the things to guard against. Yeah. And you also have this wonderful little page called lifeafterdogma.org. Maybe you'd be so kind to give us a brief uh, description of that. Absolutely. So that's my blog and website, lifeafterdogma.org. I constantly write about exposing the abuses and trauma of religion. So the psychological harm that's caused by religion. And a lot of people take an intellectual perspective to religion and point out its intellectual difficulties. But I focus more on the psychological issues and traumas and harm that's caused by religion. I don't think we pay nearly enough attention to it. There are so many people suffering, mostly within religion. It's mostly the religious people who are suffering from religion. And then the people who have left and are trying to piece their lives back together. So I write and I speak and I put on workshops. I just put on a workshop called Reclaiming Sexuality from Religion. Um, there's so much there. So, yeah, check out the blog. There's hundreds of pages of articles and resources for you. We, and lots of podcasts. And, I mean, I just did a three-hour podcast on walking through the specifics of healing and rebuilding your life in the wake of religion. Wow. wow. We need to, by any chance, you know uh, Dr. Del Rey? Yeah, I do, yeah. Oh, He's go. a great guy. I was about to say, we got to get him in touch with Daryl. <laughs> you guys are right up the same alley. Yeah, he has a great organization recovering from religion. Mm-hmm, exactly. So so let's talk about religious trauma, because I think you made a very good point. Uh, most of us, even as atheists, we have a tendency to think of what religion does to the outsider, what religion does to uh, the LGBT community, and what it does to other religions, and blah, blah, blah. But you just brought up the point that most of the victims of religion are actually within the fold of religion itself. That's right. There are millions of people who are suffering from the impact of religion, and a lot of them are not even aware of it, or they're not able to acknowledge it because they're not able to put any blame on the religion. Any suffering that happens to you within religion is blamed on you, and that's Mm -hmm. one of the mechanisms religion has of keeping people in. It's because you don't have enough faith if you're suffering or if you're struggling with anxiety and depression, it's because of temptation or divine judgment or it's just the growing process in faith or the dark night of the soul. Things like this are used to keep people from questioning their religion, but there's just all kinds of suffering that's going on for people within it. And I think this is probably maybe the number one reason that people leave religion too is because they are suffering from the psychological impact all the damage all the fear shame guilt sexual oppression that's going on within the religion and after a while they just can't take it anymore that's why i left my religion is because it gave me an anxiety disorder a full-blown anxiety disorder and i woke up to that fact and that led me to question intellectually that led me to leave and remember we're not primarily intellectual beings we don't make most of our decisions by making a checklist of pros and cons you know this is why we make most of our decisions based on feelings and what works for us and that's why most people People are in religion, and uh, my hope is that when people come to an awareness of the psychological damage, that they can heal and move forward. So that's what I'm doing. Wow, that's a that's a that's a tall order. Uh, it's a really tall order. Do you, do you feel that? I know this is going to be an interesting question because I, 
If if there was if I was to ask to pinpoint a certain group of individual that you feel is really mostly affected by religion and, and its trauma, is would you say it's is it is it women? Is it uh, the uh, different orientation is there a particular group that really really gets its ass kicked if you wish by religion on a regular basis according to your studies honestly everyone in it mm. everyone in the system and it's i mean there there are so many huge issues and traumas that it causes uh, but really it starts with judgments mm. the whole system is based on judgment the bible is first of all I, I like to call it biblical abuse because a lot of people will try to distract us and create diversions from the issue and say it's the fault of religious fundamentalism yes. or of a particular interpretation of the Bible. But all kinds of atrocious and harmful doctrines are right there in the scripture in very simple plain and apparent language. A lot of the times we're not dealing with like Kant or really abstract philosophy. This is plain, straightforward commands that are very difficult to misinterpret. And it's in the Bible. The Bible is the source of the abuse. And if you read it and take the Bible seriously, you'll see all kinds of abuse. Mm -hmm. So it's based on judgment. It starts out with judgment. God condemns Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. He judges them. They've sinned. They're cast out. And throughout the Bible, judgment is one of the main issues, good and evil, right and wrong, obedience or disobedience. There's hell and heaven. And and then in the end, in the book of Revelation, it ends with God and Jesus invading the planet with weapons of mass destruction in the plagues of Revelation, literally destroying almost all of nature, most of humanity, and judging people forever. So this system of judgment is inherently abusive. And because judgment is it's really based on a system of justice that's motivated by revenge retributive yeah. justice it's about reward and punishment and this doesn't really lead to healing it doesn't lead to wholeness or to solving the problems of humanity it just creates more it's this blaming and shaming and guilting game and it sure is a great way to control people and maybe motivate some amount of behavioral change but it doesn't result in freedom or heart transformation or love which are the things that we need to actually heal and to move forward and solve the problems of our world mm -hmm. Andrew I'm, if, if you wish I'm, uh, with your permission I'm gonna play devil's advocate here for half a second because I like doing that um, you say you say one of the main motivation is revenge in the book. Doesn't that kind of go against what one of the most famous things in the book saying turn the other cheek? That's kind of an odd thing to say that revenge is the main focus when the main character in the book says turn the other cheek, is it? Yes. So in the Bible and in religion, there's a mixture of good and bad. There's a mixture of love and fear. Religion is not all good and it's not all bad. It does plenty of really good and amazing things. And religious people are mostly sincere, great people uh, whom I really love and some of them I admire and look up to too. But the problem here is the mixture and that's what defines an abusive system. And religion is an abusive or at least Western religion is an abusive system of oppression. It impresses people. It keeps them in a kind of spiritual, moral, intellectual, and psychological slavery, which is preached explicitly in the Bible. But this mixture of, of good and bad is confusing, and it's why people stay. In an abusive relationship, yes. the abuser is not all bad. 
and that's why people stay. He's often a good guy. He might really be fun to hang out with. He might meet your material needs, but every so often he says, I'm going to kill you if you leave, and he beats you, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this mixture. That's what's confusing. That's why people stay. If it was all bad, the abuse would be obvious, and everyone would leave. And in the Bible, there is a mixture of of opposite commands. I mean, there's commands to murder. The people of God are commanded to commit genocide and ethnic cleansing and kill all of their neighbors in the book of Joshua. Mm -hmm. But then we have commands not to murder. And this is because the Bible is written by different authors over thousands of years who often disagreed with each other. And until you realize that, you can't really see it accurately. Mm -hmm. And also I've noticed in the Bible, similar to what abusers in in human as humans do is they'll turn it around on you like oh i only did this because you made me mm-hmm. so like with religion a lot of times you hear like oh god didn't send them to hell they sent themselves to hell and it's yeah, like yeah. no yeah and you know what that's a that's an absurd argument and people only make that kind of argument because they have to because yeah. the whole field of apologetics i think can be understood as making excuses in order to justify the unjustifiable, things that people would never support outside Mm -hmm. of religion. And we have to judge all ideologies equal and look at the face of them and say, if this was in the book or if it's out of the book, would I support it or would I oppose it? And you have people who are forced to defend things they would never ever support and they don't support if they find them anywhere else because they're obviously atrocious. And if we step back from this intellectualizing that doesn't make sense, this illogic, this logic of illogic that apologists do, and we just take a simple morality, like the moral reasoning of a child, that basic moral instinct that I believe we all have. There are some moral issues that are difficult. There are plenty of grays, but when it comes to something like genocide or eternal torture or human sacrifice, you know, most children, I'm going to say 99% would say, no, that's yeah. wrong. It's obvious. It's so obvious. Well, Andrew, as a as a minister and, and being heavily indoctrinated in your religion, when you began to feel anxiety, what was it that flipped the switch for you so that you got the insight to know that it wasn't your anxiety, but it was your religion that was was at the core of the of the problem? So it was a process for me that that took place over the course of years. And I was a Christian, totally devoted to my faith for all of my life. I was headed to India to become a missionary to convert Hindus and Muslims to Jesus to bring about the second coming of Christ. That was my career goal. And I was just getting my Master of Divinity at Princeton Theological Seminary to learn the original Greek and Hebrew languages of the Bible and really study and learn this thing so I could train up leaders to convert their indigenous ethno-linguistic people groups Mm -hmm. uh, to start churches in in these different groups in India and lead to Jesus' second coming. But while this was all going on, I was suffering. And I now looking back, I can see how I was suffering within religion because of religion. But at the time, I came up with alternative theories for my suffering. I thought it was psychiatric, or I thought it was a result of my lack of faith, or just kind of other issues, because I wasn't able to see that it was the religion at the time, because that would mean questioning my faith. And questioning your faith means uh, putting your sense of safety in jeopardy. 
because mm-hmm. if we lose our faith, we're taught that we can go to hell or face divine wrath or lose our community, all kinds of things. So so that's a powerful psychological me- mechanism, that fear that motivates people to intellectualize and to stay in their religion and not question it. Far more powerful than being right or wrong, I think. So what led me to question was I was just so miserable. I had so, I suffered from tons of anxiety, obsessive thinking, uh, some depression, And I just said, you know what, I need to get better. I'm going to do whatever it takes to not live by fear anymore. I just can't do this. So I really prioritized my mental health. I took therapy very seriously. And as I did this, I just very quickly began to see, like, holy shit, there's so much that's psychologically toxic in this Bible and in this religion And this is what is causing my anxiety. And the whole thing began to unravel for me. It was a slow, painful, rude awakening because I wanted to keep that because religion had meant so much to me. It provided a lot of my needs. It was my career. It was my passion. So it's really hard for people who are that entrenched to give it up. And it was my whole identity too. A religion functions as a total identity system, especially for fundamentalist forms of religion, not all of it, but especially fundamentalism, evangelical Christianity, which is the majority of Christianity in the world. Mm-hmm. Is And one full third of the United States is evangelical Christian, a full third. Wow. So this is huge, it's massive, it's absolutely everywhere. Uh, where was I going with that? I lost my train. <laughs> so I began to see how, how psychologically damaging it was. It was a process of about two years for me to leave and then quit my ministry job and really restart. And, and it was a total identity crisis because religion can co-opt the identity. It literally takes over a person's identity where a person almost becomes where their personality is almost repressed and the religion, like sometimes you'll interact with Christians who are so in the system that it's almost like they're not even there. It's a religion talking to you, not the person. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what God's doing in their life Absolutely, because they're taught in the Bible to that. Your body is not your own. Your life is not your own. You're bought with a price. You are a slave of God. The Bible literally calls Christians slaves. You are a psychological, spiritual, whole body, whole person slave of God. Every thought and idea and emotion and every life choice must be submitted to the authority of the divine ruler of this deity called God, uh, or else you could face judgment. And we're taught to police our thoughts. We're taught in Jeremiah, it says... Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the the thoughts, uh, search the hearts to pay back everyone according to what they're done. So we have God policing your thoughts, this this cruel, tyrannical thought policing looking to punish you. And so you have to be totally submissive and you have no identity. You're taught to surrender your agency, your critical thinking, your power, your responsibility. Everything must be under the authority of of this authoritarian regime called the kingdom of God. You know, that that is absolutely well said. And I also like the fact that how you're describing this as a, an abusive relationship. And it also describes the way we feel right here at Left of the Valley towards Nancy. Because she, she's the sweetest thing in the world, but she can just snap and kill us at any moment. So we, we placate her as much as we can. 
<laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the question I have, though, uh, in, in all seriousness, is uh, being a minister, and you, you know you, you Bible in and out, I'm pretty sure, do you feel this was actually designed on purpose? Or was it just a horrible coincidence that the amalgamation of all these books created this effect of, quote-unquote, slavery? This is a great question, and the more that I study religion and look at these psychologically harmful issues, the more I'm shocked, the more I'm absolutely amazed on just how systematic and pernicious this oppression really is. So I think it's an issue of both ands, not either or. There were a lot of historical influences that just came to be that we we can understand why religion is the way it is, and at the same time, there were... Religion functions as a power system. It benefits those at the top, and it has. I mean, this these ideologies were used to support kingdoms and kings, and especially the, the religion developed with the, the nation of Israel as a means of mobilizing the people under the divine ruler Yahweh. So Yahweh is the Old Testament God, and uh, before Yahweh became the the king of kings and lord of lords, Israel used to be a polytheistic people. Mm-hmm. And and we see this even in that statement, king of kings and lord of lords, and like who among the gods is like you? If you study the Bible, you can see that the Israelites used to believe in multiple gods and multiple deities. But so Yahweh emerged out of this pantheon as he was elected as the strong man to deliver the people of Israel from oppression. So they were oppressed by many foreign nations and just brutally, brutally oppressed. And so they, monotheism emerged, in part at least, as an attempt to consolidate the national identity as the people of God, and the religion was used to destroy their enemies and to commit war and really to advance a, a system that, that, that benefited the people who are in it. And, and we see this kind of a control uh, emerging and, and continuing throughout the Bible. So, so that's one reason, uh, but there are all kinds of really, uh, reasons for it, and I do think some of it is definitely intentional. Mm. Uh, so, so if you happen to stumble, I mean, you can't really diagnose something like that unless you talk to yourself like a, a professional, but if you, if you have people in your life that you suspect are a bit too much into the faith like that, how, how would you approach them to uh, maybe have them start questioning? I mean, you, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't usually use rational arguments with these people because it's not a rational argument they use to stay in the religion software, an emotional one. So, so how would you approach somebody that you, you're concerned about that's going way too deep into the hole? Well, religion thrives in ignorance and isolation, and we see this in that societies that increase their education tend to lose religiosity. There's there's an inverse proportion to education and religiosity, and I mean, religion also thrived because it was married with state. Church and state, separation of church and state is a recent historical innovation, and people didn't used to choose their religions. Religion was mandated by the state. You were born into a religion, and you didn't know any better. You know, the, the religious authority often presented themselves as God, or at least as having the authority of God, like with the Pope, and so you, you went along with it. You didn't know any better. You, it was impossible for you to know any better. 
so but now it's harder and harder to be isolated in our world uh, in our globalized society we are always interacting with other people who have different perspectives so one of them is is just honestly to interact with them and to kind of show your difference and to showcase that these these things they consider sins are actually often very healthy mm-hmm. and that that you are living in freedom and so a lot of people a lot of people leave religion because for instance they have friends who are gay and so the religion teaches them that these are sinful people and that they're living in distress. But when they actually interact with people, th- this causes a cognitive dissonance uh, where their ideology c- directly contradicts their experience because they find out that these friends are living very happy, fulfilled lives mm-hmm. and that they're great people and they're very moral people and they do this all without the religion. So I think a lot of it is just friendship, is non-judgment. Um, a lot of times when we confront people, it causes them to become more entrenched because the religion is conflated with the identity in this system. Like my religion is who I am, which is a problem because your ideology is not who you are. It's just not true. But religious people often feel threatened when we call their beliefs into question. That's not to say we shouldn't confront them. I do think that they need to hear the intellectual at, as well, and, and to be challenged, but within that context of the relationship. Uh, so I think experience is really important, um, and, and really seeing how other people are happy and are doing well in the world and the benefits of secular society. So I'd say exposure, if I had to put it down to one word. No, I think you're absolutely correct. It's, it's really hard for, for a person that knows you as, as a good person uh, all of a sudden, if they hear that all all atheists are just horrible people, say, "Well, that's not true." I happen to know uh, Nancy, who happens to be an atheist, and she's a fantastic person, unless she pulls out her gun, of course. <laughs> but <laughs> besides that, I mean, I think you, I think you're completely right. There, it's almost leading by example, and hopefully, they they will follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it also helps for religious people to have spiritual experiences, or I guess you could say consciousness expanding experiences, which is ironic. And I use the term spirituality, by the way, as an atheist. I'm comfortable with that. Some people aren't. So you call it spirituality, mysticism, consciousness, whatever you want to use. I'm not implying that God or the supernatural mm-hmm. exists. So just so people hear that. But uh, what, however you think of that term, I think that one of the great ironies of religion is it preaches spirituality, but it also suppresses it. So when I was in religion and I was in Pentecostal charismatic religion, a version that heavily emphasizes the miraculous and the spiritual, I never experienced any of it. Honestly, I experienced emotions and these like visualizations that were always questionable. Is this a trick of my mind or is this God or is this my voice or is this God's voice? But having left religion now, I have these kinds of amazing, profound, consciousness-expanding experiences of, of word, uh, things like st- ecstatic states of, of total love and bliss or a feeling connected to everything or visions and visualizations and just all kinds of amazingly profound experiences that are a result of me being freed, having full access to myself and my humanity, and not judging everything as good or bad. Hmm. 
Uh, Andrew, tell me something. Um, as a guy who's studying psychology, what is it about humans that, you know, they can't seem to do things for their own benefit? Now, for example, if you go into the world of politics, for example, you know, uh, like right now in the United States, uh, the, the Democrats are proposing a 70% tax on the uh, marginal tax on 10 million plus. Yet you have people that are very poor defending the very rich. And in religion, you have the same thing. You have, like, for example, women, you know, that are... Uh, treated absolutely horribly by all the monotheistic religion, yet they're always the ones, often the ones, on the forefront of defending the faith and giving it to the next generation. What is it about humans that we can't seem to read, put two and two together and realize this is just not good for us? I think it's because there's a commitment, to a higher commitment to the whole system and to the benefits of that system. So religion... The fundamentalist religion functions as a whole package deal. It's an all or nothing thing. It's your your total reality, your way of understanding everything, life, the universe, yourself, and all of it. And so to question one part of it throws the whole thing in jeopardy. So because of that, you're willing to defend all kinds of immoralities, uh, injustices, and harms to yourself because of the the higher commitments. Um, I mean, really, if you question this thing or if you lose it, then you lose your sense of identity. And a sense of identity, losing your sense of identity in existential crisis can almost be seen as a a death worse than death, than physical death. And you'll see that people will give up their lives in physical death in order to preserve their sense of identity or their morality. Mm. So so really, this existential crisis we, we see as like, the ultimate thing to avoid. Uh, so, so women will say defend oppressive systems in in order to preserve this this whole life system that their family might be based around, or their whole sense of identity and belonging might be based on. Which you know you could see that as as really having a priority. One interesting thing that I think is an example of what you just said is that this week uh, Sarah Sanders. Um, um, Trump's communication director made the statement that she's made before, but I, I think it had more weight in that she insists that God wants Trump to be president, which puts the priorities in that if you don't believe in Trump, if you don't like Trump, then you're going against God. And it's weaponizing the religion to say, regardless of the horrible things that Trump is doing yeah. and the horrible person that he is, it's God's plan to keep him here. And it's a way to keep that base motivated to get behind him. And it was horrific, you know, to think of that kind of political control over people who believe that their religion is their identity. It's almost it's almost like, you know, when you're watching a sports team and you're like a big fan and you realize you're going to yell at the umpire because of a call against your team. But you'll never you'll never point out. Uh, uh, when your team does actually something bad, you'll never point out. It's it's like mm-hmm. the, the people really overstep. It's like it doesn't matter anymore the, the, the morality or the standards or the values of what the team is supposed to represent as long as the team wins. And we see that in religion and we see that in politics right now very strongly, which yeah. so, we didn't used to. Yeah, so this is, this is going to be the topic of a new article I'm going to write. It's called... It's about psychological splitting and dualism, and this is a root issue. So there's something called splitting in psychology, 
And it's the root of all kinds of neuroses, like borderline personality disorder. It can lead to bipolar disorder, psychosis, narcissism. All all these kinds of things, by the way, are reflected in tendencies of religion. But so psychological splitting is this. When we split parts of our personality into good and bad and the world into good or bad, it's an all or nothing way of thinking that something's all bad or all good. And we see this in, in, it's a result of wounding and trauma, usually in early childhood, where in order to deal with rejection or pain or really difficult events, we protect the good aspects of our reality by splitting our personality into two, into a good part and a bad part, and viewing all relationships in terms of a good person and a bad person. So that way we don't have to face that the kind of the threat of the darkness of of rejection or pain engulfing everything we can compartmentalize it and separate it out and say you know this is my sinful nature this is the bad me and i'm a saint here this is the good me and but what happens when we split we we view the world through a tainted lens so we have good people and bad people so for instance you'll hear people who've been traumatized in relationships or with the other gender saying things like all guys are bad you know women women or men suck right you'll hear people mm-hmm. like put doing this all or nothing category and they're really projecting their pain they're saying i had a negative experience with the other gender and this is how i'm protecting myself from that pain and so this results the psychological splitting uh disconnects us from ourselves it it keeps pain from overwhelming and destroying us but it it creates a dissociative experience of life Mm. and we repress the difficult aspects of ourselves into an unconscious shadow self and um, it keeps us from experiencing life because uh, really emotional health is embracing the fullness of life the painful and the pleasant. And when we're when we become more healthy, we, we don't run away from our unpleasant experiences. We accept the difficult aspects of ourselves and of reality and we integrate. And when we do that, we, we suffer less because we're not fighting and raging against our reality. We're not repressing things. We're not creating an additional layer of suffering. And so really this whole like God and Satan is a result of psychological splitting, right? All of this character called God is all good. This character called Satan is all bad. And everything we do is either all good or all bad. And we can't see the grays. We can't experience the grays. We can't experience people as good or as a, as gray people or ourselves as gray people. So we have to condemn all these people who are different from us as, as evil and satanic or demonic. And, and what this does is it, it, it gets us to the idea of, of sin and original sin and uh, as a means of understanding human behavior. And it's uh, the doctrine of sin is, I think, one of the most oppressive doctrines of all mm-hmm. of religion. It's telling you – it's a doctrine of systemic shaming. It's telling you that you are bad, you're evil, your fundamental inclination is to do harm – and it's really a form of self-hatred. And and really, this doesn't produce morality. It produces the opposite. I mean, if you tell people they're bad, they'll start to believe it. 
Um, and we don't help people who are criminals per se or who do bad things by putting them under a system of rules or by telling them they have a bad nature. We help them by telling them they're not bad because they do bad things. We help them by not judging them, by saying this isn't who you are. This isn't your nature. No, you're absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, when you talk to a lot of Christians, uh, if you ask them a simple question, do you think people are fundamentally good or bad? They will tell you most likely people are fundamentally bad, which of course is demonstrably false. If mm -hmm. people were fundamentally bad, the entire world would be a chaos, would just be absolutely horrible. Yeah. Uh, and and I you'd, have, you'd have killers around every corner and you'd have, you know, <laughs> and the funny thing is, that's exactly when you talk to them, that's exactly what they think happens. They think there is a killer around every corner do you think there is a guy with a gun that's about to to, to, to rape you and mug you around every stone they can turn that's right and the only thing that's keeping you good is your belief in god and in jesus the redeemer yeah without that they don't feel that there's any natural morality at all so you're now under the power of of the belief if i understand what you're saying correctly andrew Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think Andrew's opening a huge can of worms here. <laughs> huge, huge can of worms. Yes. But I, I would say the wounding and the abuse of religion, well, I, I mean, I guess it starts with the dualism and that kind of a splitting thing I described, but then it, it really takes root in the idea of sin, which, by the way, no school of psychology subscribes to the idea of sin as a way of making sense of human behavior or the human personality. It's been completely invalidated by psychology. And this is part of why religions often, especially fundamentalist religions, resist psychology, because psychology has recognized from the beginning uh, – I mean, or at least especially since Freud, that religion is so psychologically oppressive. It's so harmful. It's so unhealthy. It introduces delusion, anxiety, fear, shame, a false identity, all kinds of things into the mix. But especially the idea of sin. It's been completely invalidated by psychology. Saying that you have a sinful nature doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, so this idea of bringing judgment Understanding the world by a system of judgment, rewards and punishment, good and evil, God and Satan. Again, I said that was based on uh, splitting, which is based on a response to trauma and suffering. Uh, that whole way of judgment is the opposite of how humans heal. It's the complete opposite. That leads to more suffering. The way in which we get better and we heal the oppression and harms both in our societies and within ourselves is applying a perspective of non-judgment, of unconditional love, we could say, of positive self-regard. That's a, a, a term, unconditional positive self-regard, which means this. We bring awareness to our faults and our flaws and the issue, the dark sides of ourselves, the, the things that we tend to repress in religion and just shame and shove out of our consciousness. And we bring a non-judgmental, compassionate acceptance of them. And so, so I may have a, an, a problem with addiction, right? And when, in, in a religious system, what do I do when I, when I say I, I drink in an addictive way? Uh, I, I say, you know, you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. Oh, crap, I'm under God's judgment. You know, I get afraid and I try to stuff and repress that part of myself and say I'm a sinner. And that only makes the addiction worse. That's just more repression. And that's self-judgment and shame. And self-judgment and shame 
will lead to more addiction, really. It, it creates more of the same problem. But when we start to have a different relationship with our problems, that shifts and it takes out the power of the problem. So when I have when I have those addictive thoughts, I don't judge myself as bad. I start to notice it and say, that's interesting. I get curious about it and say, mm-hmm. well, look at this. I'm, I'm struggling right now. I'm engaging this addictive behavior, but I'm not judging myself. I'm not attaching it to my sense of worth. And, and we, it takes the power out of it. And the more we bring love, loving awareness and non-judgment to our pain and our experience of suffering, we start to integrate the, and accept those parts of ourselves that we don't like. And we start to actually heal from that trauma and that shame and, and to be more free and to be able to make more conscious, empowered choices. So really, it's, the way to health is literally the exact opposite of the idea of sin. Also, the reason why uh, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't really work, no matter what they say, no matter how much they they, 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 they try to make it sound like it does. Sin has always been, as far as I'm concerned, an imaginary disease invented to sell you a religious cure. It really is that. There's no, That's I right. mean, you, you ask most religious people, what, what what is sin? Describe to me what sin is, and they can't really come with a good answer. They just say, well, something God doesn't like. Well, there could be a lot of things if you look at the book. <laughs> well, Andrew, how, how do your clients, um, I, I don't know what you call them, how do, you, how do people come to you for help? How do they find out who you are and, and where to find you? Yeah, they, they usually find me just through reading my blog articles or hearing some of the the podcasts and talks that I've given, so I'm usually through the internet, and they they reach out to me that way, mm-hmm. and just in person as well. Do you have individual clients, or do you do group? How do you how do you organize your um, your therapeutic groups? Yeah, I see individual clients. I've also put on some workshops, but it's mostly individual work. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you going to be part of uh, Del Rey's uh, secular therapy project? Once you finish your graduation, you, you, you get your doctorate there? I don't think so. No. I think I'm going to mostly do my own thing. I'm, and I'm studying for my doctorate right now. And I'm, I'm looking at doing my dissertation on the psychological harms of indoctrination mm-hmm. and also thinking of creating a training program for therapists and helping professionals on the abuses of religion and, and how to treat them. So that's my interest. But I, I'm also very interested in again spirituality and those experiences and a lot of atheists i think just can get triggered or turned off by that Mm -hmm. and by my curiosity about those Uh, but i've i found them to be so powerfully healing Uh, a lot of teachings within buddhism are amazingly sophisticated with how they deal with emotions and suffering and uh, talking about some of the, uh, what are called transpersonal states, different kinds of consciousness where uh, I actually experience and people regularly experience a lot of the states and mystical things that are described by religions. Because remember, these are all a part of our human experience. Some people have had those within religion, but if we're to take a non-supernaturalist worldview, these things are realities. We just have to understand them in a different framework. Uh, but they're, they're, they shouldn't be just shoved out and dismissed because we associate them with religion because uh, religion can kind of steal them and rob us of the joy of having them. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today and explaining all this to us. So give, uh, give us again your email address if people want to reach out to you. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's Andrew J J A S K O Andrew J Jasko at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook or Twitter or on my website, lifeafterdogma.org. Fantastic. And we'll put the links up in the notes of the show for people to find you. Andrew, thank you so much. You're a new friend. And before I let you go, I got to have you say, hi, this is Andrew Jasko, and I took a left in the valley. Hi, this is Andrew Jasko, and I took a left at the valley. And that was Andrew Jasko. Oh, fabulous conversation. Boy, did he cram a lot of information in that little short interview, man. No kidding. Boy. Look at that guy go. I'm going to have to keep a serious eye on him because Dr. Jasko is going to be happening very yeah. soon. He's we'll come back such, on the show. He's, he's really got such a great personality. He sounds very warm. He's very yes. communicative. I mean, yeah. if, if ever I want to give up my assassin addiction, he's the guy that <laughs> I, I, I can. I, I think he'd help me. I really do. <laughs> I think so, too. Well, at least you can admit it. it's, a, it's an addiction, Nancy. That yeah, is well, the first that's step. the first step. He might start to uh, write his thesis about us from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, I think we're thesis worthy. Come I on. think so too. I, I mean, if so Chris too. wants if Chris wants to invite us to his thesis presentation, why wouldn't be thesis worry? You know, for the secular side as well. Exactly. I we're mean, we're I, devout I, secularists. So it'll work. <laughs> 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 oh, it's going to be great. Oh, thank you so much for joining us on the show, guys. And thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow us at leftatthevalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at LETV Podcast. You can help us on the Patreon yeah, now. go check that Patreon. out. Patreon.com slash Who knows, you might get some extra goodies over there. Yeah, we'll, we'll put some stuff with some goodies, you know. The more of a patron you become, we'll thank you. We'll build a cathedral where you were born. <laughs> we'll uh, flower your mausoleum when you die. We'll be so ever grateful. Yep. <laughs> Give us a five star review wherever you find us. Uh, that really helps us and helps others find the show. Okay, coming up next week, we'll be talking to Zach from the Zacrilege, the Zacrilege Podcast. Nice. That's going to be interesting. And on the 16th, we'll have Matt Dillahunty, the legendary Matt Dillahunty. Coming up two weeks. On the 23rd, we'll have the, the guys from Godless Heathen. That's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, uh, March in March, we'll have the Skeptical Texans. And we'll also have... Oops. We'll have the guys from Atheist News with Steve DiMarco. Oh. That's going to be interesting. And, of course, on the 23rd will be a five-year anniversary show. Woohoo! That's crazy. And at the end of the month of March, we'll be talking to our good friend Richard Carrier. Oh, good so, way to start the sixth year off. Yeah, exactly. Start with a bang, for sure. So we got lots of good things coming down the pipe, as per usual. Okay. Anything else you need to add to this? Get a good night's sleep, guys, and drink yes. water. And yeah. drink to my water. little my little buddy Dominic, buddy, I got your back. And we love you, dude. You yes, yeah, awesome. sure do. We got your back, buddy. All right, guys, thank you so much. Until next time. And the, and the fact that he studies psychology means he can deal with us. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Although he might he might write his thesis on us after this interview. <laughs> oh yeah. I oh, probably man. have enough religious promises. As long as we don't traumatize yeah. him, we're okay. Uh, and Andrew, is there somewhere you don't want us to go with this interview? I mean, mostly we're gonna let you take us wherever you want us to go. But you know, I don't want to ask a question that makes you know, uncomfortable or anything like that. Is there something you want to? 
off limits or something. No, I write about all the uncomfortable things, so okay. those are my favorite. Fantastic. Because there was something about a goat that happened the other day, and uh... <laughs> Kevin was getting some uncomfortable feelings. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, Andrew. We we just now gotten uh, uh, Kevin off of sex with furniture, so you know. <laughs> I, I think we'll be okay. Uh, we can always come back to that. We can. That's that's sort of our fallback conversation. I think I, I think I visibly saw the picture of Andrew on Skype get darker all of a sudden. He's like, oh my god, I'm regretting this call. Hey, no, this is like great material for his. He can, he's like could be like analyzing us all. But like, okay, what mental illness this one has? <laughs> the perfect opportunity for him. That that's all I do. <laughs> Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.